for centuries. They have been trying to keep us where they want us. Why do demons disappear when you die? And yet humans leave these nasty skeletons behind. We'll get our children back. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's Season 1, Episode 5, The Lost Boy. And we're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Laura, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. I'm Dan, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. Okay, Dan. Well, in this episode, we're seeing a departure from Philip Pullman's trilogy. The series here is cutting back and forth between Lyra's adventures with Egyptians in the north, which are pages 203 to 238 in the Golden Compass, depending on what edition you have. And um, we're cutting back and forth between that and the introduction of Will Perry, a boy from our own world. Will's father is John Perry, a.k.a. Stanislas Grumman, a.k.a. the hot priest from Fleabag. The explorer who is of such great, if still somewhat inexplicable, interest to Lord Boreal. We meet both Will and his mother, Elaine. They're characters who don't appear in the books until the second volume, The Subtle Knife, and we get a sense of how difficult life is for both of them due to Elaine's mental illness. We also see Lyra go off on a side mission at the behest of the alethiometer, which instructs her to visit a spooky village in search of a ghost, and Yorick Bernison accompanies her. So in today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at the alethiometer. How exactly does this thing work? How does Lyra read it? And where did Philip Pullman come up with this idea? As is always the case on The Authority, we are not going to be spoiling what's going to happen later on the show, but we are going to be talking broadly about the world of Philip Pullman's book. So a few of the details that we talk about might be considered spoiler adjacent if you are hypersensitive about such things. So beware. I mean, just read the books. Okay, so if you've got questions about His Dark Materials or responses to our show, email us at asktheauthority at slate.com or find us on Twitter. Dan's at at Dan Coyce and I'm at at Magician's Book. This week, we'd like to thank listener Lizzie Wade for writing in with her theory about the homeland of the Egyptians. She points out that as it's described in the book, this place, which is between the eastern coast of Britain and the Netherlands, sounds a lot like Doggerland. If you've never heard of that before, that's the name given by archaeologists to land that was inhabited during the Mesolithic period and then submerged 8,500 years ago at the end of the last Ice Age. Lizzie speculates that perhaps more glaciers remain in the Arctic of Lyra's world than in our world, and that sea levels did not rise as high there as they did here, so Doggerland still exists, it's still exposed as marshy fens, and the Egyptians are the descendants of the original hunter-gatherers who lived there, making them the indigenous people of Britain. Fascinating. I found this totally fascinating. I love this email from Lizzie. Thank you so much. And it um, has not only made me think a little bit more about the Egyptians and the and the role that they play and this somewhat arcane but very thematically appropriate notion of where the, the Egyptians might be from, of what, of what this East Anglia might be. It's also sent me back, you know, in sort of a tangent but a delightful one, to uh, an early play by Carol Churchill, uh, my favorite playwright called Fen, uh, which is set in the Fens of East England, and which incorporates this a, a similar kind of combination of sort of hard-bitten 
reality and and a, a, a people who are just getting by but proud of their unique culture and a kind of ancestor-based, very old-seeming theology or even mysticism with the, you know, in the fens of these books, we see marsh ghosts and monsters and spirits and will-o'-the-wisps. And in Carol Churchill's play Fen, there's also this sense of this, um, of this mystical energy flowing through this place. And I like the idea that that maybe all comes from this ancient lost place that in the books still exists. Because in the books, as, as those who read the books know, this question of of how high the seas have risen, how high they will rise, how the earth is affected by the things that happen over the course of this book becomes a major issue. At some point in this book, rivers are going to start running backwards. Places that were once land become flooded. And the idea that this has not yet happened to the fens, but might, I find super fascinating. We also received a question from Mitch Marks about the pronunciation of demon. Mitch writes, when I read the books, I figured that the word demon should be pronounced more or less like daemon or perhaps very fancy diamond. And he wants to know how the rest of us imagine the word was pronounced when reading the books. And I have to admit that at first I was somewhat confused and thought it might be daemon. But demon, spelled with the orthographic ligature between the A and the E, is just an alternate spelling of the word that is pronounced demon. My understanding is that the only demon that's pronounced Damon is Matt Damon's demon. <laughs> okay. That's really helpful. I, I, though I don't know if we know whether Matt Damon exists in Lyra's world since they don't seem to have movies. Well, that's fat. I, I wonder. I wonder. He goes, to, <laughs> he goes to Cambridge College in Boston. One of the enduring mysteries of the Pullman verse. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so let's start by talking about Will Perry and the decision to introduce his storyline so early on. Um, I have to say that while it makes perfect sense to do this, because it would completely not work to have the second season start out with completely unfamiliar characters in a different world and go on and on and on until they finally connect— I still miss the way the books kept blowing my mind by enlarging the stage of the story with these big cosmic reveals. How did this work for you, Dan? Ah, it drove me crazy. <laughs> oh, no. I, well, I was sort of on board with Lord Boreal and his excursions to the other worlds as giving us hints that the series will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I, too, love the sort of mind-blowing move that this book series makes in – Ending the first book the way that it does and then beginning the second book with suddenly an all-new character in a new place that's recognizably our world, who we don't understand at all how he fits into the story until later on, until later in, in, in that book. I mean, you know, about 30 pages into that book, we suddenly start to understand how he fits into that story. But that sense that everything you think you understand about this story and this world that you're living in is 
in some way wrong and that there's this completely parallel thing happening seems like a very sharp move on Philip Pullman's part and something that always amazed me. And it is a little disheartening to me to see it transformed in a in a very familiar way into what I think of as just sort of the mode of prestige television. I sort of think of it as this is the Game of Thronesification of his dark materials, right? Where the books are very satisfied um, to just tell one story until the time comes that another story must be told. And then only as time goes on do we start to have the kind of story where you're in one place, then you're in another, then you're with other characters. Only as the action expands does the story itself expand. Here it seems to have been very important to these producers, perhaps I think, in the desire to mirror the success or to hope for the success that Game of Thrones had to immediately turn this into a multivalent story that's happening in multiple places all at the same time instead of just sticking with Lyra, focusing on Lyra and taking us through it as she goes through it before allowing the world to expand. I also understand why they did it. I also understand that it makes for a familiar TV language, right, of intercutting from Mrs. Coulter in the Magisterium to Lyra, wherever she is, to a bear in a cave, to something else. But it but it depressed me a little bit that this kind of very familiar language seemed necessary. Yeah, it's it's what I would call pedestrian. You know, it's it's inflected with the worry that the audience is going to become very impatient if they aren't kept up to date on various characters or is going to forget about them. I mean, maybe there's an argument that if you're writing a drama instead of a literary narrative, you can't get away with some of the same things or you you have to have more of this sort of unity of, of at least plot line. It's not exactly an Aristotelian unity. And maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. It's interesting to think about, and maybe some of our listeners can write in about dramatic texts. You know, I guess we should say basically television series, because they're the only thing that are quite as long as novels, that do make a bold move this way, that do just stop one narrative and go and invest a lot in a new narrative and ask the viewers to watch that and get caught up in that and only much later explain how it's relevant to the narrative that we thought we were being told. Um, possibly there are forms that have done that. I just can't think of any offhand. The example that always comes to my mind, it's not exactly the same, but it's the show Lost, which yeah. which specialized in and reveled in several instances of dramatic rug pulling uh, in which things that you thought to be true turned out to completely not be true and they were left unexplained for a long, long time. And now I think TV showrunners are very cautious about stuff like that now because of how famously poorly the ending of Lost was received, the way it didn't seem to actually in the end warrant all those rug pullings and didn't seem to tie it all together. But you don't have that problem with His Dark Materials. You know where His Dark Materials is going. You have a whole blueprint. So you have the opportunity to try something really outrageous and crazy on narrative television, something that people don't do that much. And it's a bummer that they didn't have the confidence in the material to either do it or to do something like it. I mean, look, it's not 
I don't think anyone watching this series, even if they haven't read the books, is not getting the impression that at some point, right, Lyra and Will are going to meet. And the way that they meet in the book series, the the rewards of that moment after us having our, our brains twisted for the first 30 pages of The Subtle Knife, that second book in the series, is so great that imagining a version of the series that started off season two a year from now – with Lyra not even in the picture, with us just meeting Will, getting to know him, and then say at the end of episode one, all of a sudden there's Lyra and us all being like, oh, fuck. Um, it's, <laughs> I just think it's a bummer that they didn't seize that opportunity because you're not going to blow it the way Lost did. You know yeah. where the story's going. Yeah. Maybe they have sort of the idea that a child audience is not going to be able to follow this. I don't know. I mean, I love the way that plot line is dramatized. I just don't like so much where it's inserted. I think that I kind of like the weird sort of mid-century modern house that Will and Elaine live in. I think that the performances are are really good. And then I think Lord Boreal showing up and pretending to be a friend of her, of Elaine's husband and then Elaine freaking out. And, and that's when the audience, if they don't know the story, realizes that Elaine is has a, some kind of mental illness, but then at the same time, who wouldn't be freaked out by this guy since we know what um, what a scoundrel he is? And so, um, I, you know, I I liked all of that. You know, the the feeling of menace and also the sort of compassion that we feel for Elaine and and Will, who are just struggling with this thing and dealing with really unsympathetic other people. I I, I again, I think I find myself. Not liking the way big picture stuff is handled, but really liking the way the human scale stuff is handled. Right. They're executing it well, but the larger decisions I'm not convinced will pay off. Yeah. And maybe the story is strong enough, again, that it doesn't matter. I'm going to be compelled enough by Will and Elaine and what's about to happen to Will that whether you put it now or you put it at the beginning of season two, I'm going to want to follow it and want to know what's happening. The one big divergence um, from the book in some ways in the story of Will and Elaine, it's not just that it's Lord Boreal who in particular is menacing them in the book. It's sort of anonymous, uh, you know, military guys or, or spies or someone. We never really exactly know who they are, but it's that Will doesn't believe it at all. In the yeah. book, we're led to understand that that Elaine's mental illness, there seems to be some sense that she is suffering from OCD or some other kind of compulsive disorder, that that has been going on for some time, but that recently, at the moment the subtle knife begins, that recently Will has become aware that she's not imagining things, that there are men who are outside the house, that there are, in fact, people have come into the house and questioned them about his father and where it is that he went. And so he knows that for all of the problems that seem to be only in her own mind, some of them are very real and they're the ones that are most uh, troubling to him. And that's why he takes the action that he takes at the beginning of the book, an action I expect we'll see some version of at some point in the series. But right now what we have is we have an Elaine who knows something is wrong and a Will who as of yet has no idea that something is wrong. And so that turn I'm assuming is going to come pretty soon. It has to come pretty soon because otherwise I feel like Will Will's relationship with his mother and with the story becomes a little bit skewed. And he is a character who benefits from 
knowing what's going on and having a plan. And so keeping him in this state of just, I'm, he's just a kid who doesn't know what's up yet is not that interesting to me. And I hate being like this. That man this morning set me off. I love you too, Mum. And you're not to say that. Now eat. You need to eat. You cook like him as well. I don't remember his cooking. Oh, he didn't need much to rustle up a genuine feast. It's an omelette, Mum. No feast. And you're kind, like he is. You've got his temper. He always, he always wanted to protect the vulnerable. And he went out into the world and found a way to do it. Well, we also have Lyra's expedition to the fishing village, which gives Lyra and Yorick some quality time together to develop their true grit dynamic. They do kind of remind me of the characters in, in that novel. With, with Yorick as Rooster Cogburn? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. You just need to give yeah. him an eye patch. Yeah, <laughs> he would be great with an eye patch. There is the... You know, one of the f most favorite scenes in the book happens here, which is um, Lyra riding Yorick across the frozen wastes. And it seems like a good occasion for me to just mention that this, how much this scene reminds me of the scene where Lucy and, and Susan Pevensey ride on Aslan toward the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And to talk a little bit about Philip Pullman's very fraught relationship with C.S. Lewis. I remember well, we went to a pub in Oxford called the Eagle and Child, where Tolkien and Lewis and their friends used to go and drink together. And there was a picture of C.S. Lewis up on the wall. And um, Philip and I had a drink there, and we talked about C.S. Lewis. And every once in a while, he would look over at the picture and just give him the fish eye. <laughs> um, but I do think that he was uh, has a little bit more influenced by um, the Chronicles of Narnia than he sometimes lets on. It seems almost like it's that he's just very smart about knowing to steal the good stuff from Chronicles of Narnia, right? The power of that scene of Lucy and Susan rising, riding Aslan is so great that he knows, you know, how primordially, how primally powerful that is. And I, you know, I think of the, the way this book begins with Lyra literally in a wardrobe as uh, as a world as a world expands just outside her view like it seems like it seems like he's having fun with those story elements while also using them to his advantage in a way that that definitely reflects the way these books are meant to be talking to a whole bunch of different texts, not just, you know, Blake and Milton, as you talked about last episode, but a, a number of children's books that have explored similar notions and similar worlds to the worlds of his dark materials. That's very true. It's just that he is so down on C.S. Lewis sometimes that, uh, that it, uh, <laughs> it seems a little over the top. Um, what did you like or dislike about this scene, Dan? Well, the first thing I'll say is that um, it is true that for everyone who reads these books, the moment of Lyra riding across the snow with Yorick is so wonderful and it's described so beautifully in the books. And this now marks the second occasion in which the best special effects teams in the world could not make it look not stupid. Uh, yeah. It's true. <laughs> like, there's just no way to put a kid on a polar bear's back in real life and make it seem like good or real or like she wouldn't just fall off instantly or or like she isn't just like like she's so far up to the to his head. 
in this yeah. version that I just thought he would just like trip and flip over a couple of times. Yeah. But it just does there's no grandeur to it. it. It's because he's he's galumphing and she's holding on for dear life and the music is soaring, but yet it looks so silly. Um and and you know, it's so resolutely earthbound uh that there's just no way I think to give it the magic that it has in the book when it's viewed subjectively through Lyra's eyes as the culmination of this long dream she doesn't even know she's had. Um, and so I laughed through this scene, but whatever. It, it still means a lot to Lyra. And I do think that kids who have read these books will still love it and love seeing it. But it it is like silly on screen, right? Yeah. it. it I, I mean, I had always imagined her sort of clinging very far down on his back and holding onto his fur very tightly because he's not a horse, as he says earlier, and it doesn't seem right. like you'd be able to sit upright on his back. Um, let's move on to the village scene. Uh, I, this part of the Golden Compass where Lyra comes into the village, she finds um, this little boy who in the in the book is named Tony Macarios and has no actual connection to any of the other characters and has been sort of shunned by the people in this village. And he's just sort of huddled in this fishing hut with this little piece of dried fish um, asking for Ratter, his demon, and holding the dried fish because it's like almost like a transitional object for the demon he's lost is probably the most heart-rending thing that Philip Pullman has ever written. And while this episode, this sort of sequence in the series looks really great, I don't think that it has the same pathos, partly because Billy Costa is not conscious, um, which is, I guess, their way of sort of showing how affected he is, how he's essentially lifeless. Um, and so they kind of, so the series kind of tries to give us an emotional end to the situation by showing the grief of the Costas, um, which is fine, but I don't think is as quite as affecting as seeing the little boy actually suffering instead of just being an unconscious lump. Yeah. I felt like this. we lost a lot in this sequence. We lose, as you mentioned, the villagers who won't even speak to to Tony Macarios, who won't allow him into their homes, who when Lyra comes, all they want is for her to get the, what they view as a monster out of their village. When Lyra brings Tony back to the Egyptian camp, there are men there who can't even look at him. Um, and and Yorick uh, reprimands them, scolds them, telling them, you know, what, you know, this child has done something brave and you can't even bring yourself to look at this boy. Pull yourselves together. And That's so we great. Lose, that is such a great moment. Yeah. And we and we lose this other incredible moment in which, as you mentioned, Tony Macarios has this little bit of fish that he's holding on to because his his demon, his ratter, is gone. And after he dies, Lyra comes to his funeral pyre to look at him one last time and discovers that the fish is gone. And she demands of all the Egyptians around there what happened to that piece of fish. And they're all embarrassed, and they, you know, they say we didn't really know it meant anything. We're sorry. We took it, and we, we, just, we you know, we gave it to our dogs to eat. And she, I mean, she like tears them a new one. Yeah. Uh, and her grief 
and her, sadness her and rage. Yeah. And her compassion for that boy is so intense. And it made me so sad to lose that because, I, you know, I don't care about Ma Costa. Like, <laughs> Ma Costa yeah. is great. She's a great character in support of Lyra. The, the actor they have portraying her is very, very good. But Ma Costa does not matter to me in the long run. And this set of scenes, Lyra's bravery in going to this village, her compassion in taking this boy who she finds horrible to behold, and then her defense of him, uh, even after his death, tells us so much about her and about demons and about how unnatural it is to everyone for someone to not have a demon, that to replace her, all that stuff with a very dramatically familiar form of motherly grief, a mother grieving for her child, which is sad, but which I've seen 10 trillion times before in other series, that just seemed like a real misstep to me. And it misses an opportunity to for the for the series makers to show us Lyra's courage and her her bigness of heart. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we feel pretty similar about that. Um, it's interesting that just in the story overall, that the alethiometer has such a hard time communicating to Lyra what's wrong with Tony slash Billy, that it that or that she can't read it, possibly because while she is an intuitive reader of the alethiometer, like the, the idea of a person without a demon is uh, just unthinkable to her. Um, even though most of the time the alethiometer is just really effective at conveying very detailed information, like exactly how many tartars are posted on guard at Balvanger and that kind of stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about the alethiometer. It's amazing that it can communicate all of this stuff because its language consists entirely of 36 symbols, which are tiny pictures of things like a baby and a cauldron and a dolphin. And so you wonder how can she she get these very precise responses for John Faw out of these symbols. What is the alethiometer, Dan, and how does it work? Uh, so the name for it, Philip Pullman's name for it, comes from the Greek word for truth, aletheia. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And, and the first thing we learn about it is the thing that uh, the master at Jordan tells Lyra, which is it tells the truth. Lyra has this ability to read it, which she develops in both the book and the series very quickly, despite never having any training. And she describes it at one point in both the book and in this series as feeling like going down a ladder in the dark. You know the next step is there, so you put your foot down, and there it is. That is the way the meanings of the alethiometer come to her as easily as that. It's trying to tell me something else. It's trying to warn me of something. I suspect it's trying to warn you of everything. We're walking into a blood battle here. But we're ready. Here's how it works. Practically, and we've seen it in action. You arrange three big needles uh, over three different symbols to pose the question. You have to create the question out of the various meanings you know intuitively or through study those symbols mean. 
And then the fourth needle responds to that when you are in the right mind frame by swinging back and forth from one symbol to another to answer that question. You have to hold the question in your mind while simultaneously falling into a kind of trance state, a state that we see Lyra in in those scenes where where she and, and Pan are together sort of just watching the alethiometer do its work. Later uh, in The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the series, a character compares it to looking in two directions at once to see those like magic eye 3D pictures among the dots, which I think is a useful way to think about it. One of your inner eyes is always focused on the question, but one of your inner eyes must become kind of vague and gauzy so that the alethiometer, so you can get into that kind of flow state where the alethiometer can do its work. All the symbols, all 36 of those symbols have many meanings, multiple meanings, infinite meanings, it's suggested. And the simplest way to think of it is that the needle comes to each symbol a certain number of times, and that number of times conveys which of the meanings it means. Sometimes it's very simple, right? When Lyra wanted to know uh, what happened to the two kids who went off on that mission to Mrs. Coulter's house, the alethiometer pointed to an hourglass with a skull on it, and it meant death. Not that complicated. But sometimes it can be really complicated, as in this this time when she, when the alethiometer is trying to explain to her about Billy or Tony in the village. In the book, she tells Farda Coram she couldn't understand it because the message the alethiometer gave her was bird and not bird and not. And it didn't make any sense because it meant no demon. And she didn't have any context for understanding how that could be. So she could not put the clues together. The alethiometer told me, it, I was asking about Bullvanger. Hello, Lyra. Yes, hello. And it told me about the next valley. There's a village with something horrible in it and folks are troubled by a... Yes? A ghost, I think. Or something. It's connected to our task, but I don't know how. I think I need to go to it. One thing that is fascinating about this series and, and something that's going to develop through the TV series as it develops through the books is the difference in the way Lyra reads the alethiometer and the way that other people in her world read the alethiometer. We see an alethiometrist, right? We saw Fra Pavel, who is the magisterium's alethiometrist, who who you ask him a question and he's like, okay, I'll have an answer for you in a couple of days, maybe a week, who knows? Um, Lyra reads it instantly. Uh, in the in the books, a character tells her that she reads the alethiometer by grace, whereas adults read it by work. Th adults have to study for years the the ancient texts to understand all the deeper meanings and to train themselves to get into that flow state. Lyra just does it. Somehow she just knows. Um, I've been reading this really interesting essay in a book called His Dark Materials Illuminated, which is a, a lovely collection of academic essays on the books. It's by Shelley King. And one point that uh, the, the King makes in this essay is that these two different ways of being able to read the alethiometer, either through grace or through work, the grace of a child or the work of an adult, parallels in many ways Pullman's sort of own parallel readers for these books. There are children, right, who read the books as children's books, who read them intuitively, who understand the power of the story and follow it. And then there's adults, scholars, who find within it layers and levels of meaning, often with the help of the books that they've previously read, not just 
the C.S. Lewis, but the Milton and the Blake that you, Laura, have read. <clears throat> um, and uh, and I found that I found that fascinating to think of the alethiometer as a kind of as containing within it not only the truth of the universe that we're in, but a, but it being a kind of synecdoche of the books yeah. themselves. Yeah. Well, in the books. The alethiometer is a very rare device. Only six of them were ever made. And they were invented by a fictional uh, 17th century experimental theologian in Prague named Pavel Konrath. And you can see the name Konrath on the dial of the alethiometer in the, in the series. And he made them out of this rare metal alloy, of t- an alloy of two rare metals. So the art of making them has somehow been lost. And it was originally meant to be an astronomical device, but he soon discovered that he could use it to get answers to questions. Um, Conrath was burned as a heretic by the magisterium. Um, so technically, the alethiometer is a heretical device, although we know that the magisterium has one and they use it. They've got a guy who reads it. So that should give us a sense of just, you know, how complicated the magisterium's relationship to its own official morality is. Conrath seems to be based on this actual historical 16th century monk named Giordano Bruno, who is also mentioned in his dark materials and who spent some time in Oxford while traveling around Europe. And um, on him, on on Bruno, and then also on a German alchemist named Heinrich Kunrath, who lived at around the same time. Now, Bruno himself was also excommunicated and burned as a heretic in Rome. And this is important, in part for arguing not only that the earth revolves around the sun, but also that there are other worlds and that there's probably intelligent life on planets revolving around other stars. Um, Pullman has said that uh, a book about Bruno, written by the great 20th century um, esoteric cultural historian Francis Yates, was a major inspiration for his dark materials. And Bruno himself once wrote that to think is to speculate with images— which is obviously one of the things that you do when you're reading an alethiometer and is also a very sort of medieval slash renaissance notion. Yeah, and Dr. Uh, Lansalius, the witch's consul, mentions that when he's talking to Lyra and Fardacorum in the books on, on page 173, uh, Dr. Lansalius says, uh, this was in the 17th century, symbols and emblems were everywhere, buildings and pictures were designed to be read like books. Everything stood for something else. If you had the right dictionary, you could read nature itself. Yeah, a very popular thing at that time was something called an emblem book, which had images like the images in on the alethiometer that had many layers of meanings. One of the particular ways that is that 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 there's a similarity between Kunrath and the books and Bruno is that both were really interested in memory theaters or palaces, which were a system of expanding your memory so that it could hold just an immense amount of information at a time when books were really rare and it was really hard to get writing materials. They were expensive. You could use images, a system of images to which you could assign meaning and pieces of information and then organize them mentally in a way so that you could just remember an incredible amount of stuff. And this was called 
The Art of Memory, which is another thing Francis Yates wrote a book about. And hopefully we'll put a link to a piece I wrote about Francis Yates and The Art of Memory for Slate on our on our show page. You know, the idea that these images were just filled with many, many layers of meanings, the way that Venus could be a planet and it could be a goddess and it could be a, uh, a you know, an allegorical representation of love. This is this is a way of thinking that was widespread uh, in Europe from you know for many centuries. But it's also a sort of esoteric tradition that has to do with Gnosticism and Hermeticism that Pullman is sort of alluding to here as a sort of secret body of knowledge that was not exactly sanctioned by the religious authorities, and so. Using this device with these images and having it be a heretical device is full of resonance in our own history. And a body of knowledge that Lyra can access seemingly naturally, that she can fall into, that she can step down onto like a ladder in the dark. I think that's really potent when you compare it to the arduous task that Fra Pavel must undergo in, you know, in consulting books just to figure out how to ask the question and then watching so carefully and counting every every stop that the needle makes and then consulting these enormous tomes. We actually saw one of these books earlier in the series during Mrs. Coulter's raid on Jordan College. It was the book that she showed, The Master of Jordan College. These things are huge and extensively cross-referenced and presumably they take days just to sort through. And 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 the ease or grace with which Lyra does it, to which Lyra has access to these centuries or maybe eternal knowledge, I find really fascinating. Well, one thing that Conrath supposedly realized after he made the alethiometer is that he thought that he invented the symbols, but then he later decided that he discovered them. Uh, it, there's a sense that they pre-existed his own devising of them you know he like pulled them out of the air which is sometimes the way that philip pullman talks about um, motifs in his own storytelling like the demons right and about stories in general that they stories are eternal and he is just tapping into them in that way um, all right. Two other things I want to say about the alethiometer. Number one, it should not click. It shouldn't make that clicking sound as the needle goes around. It should flow smoothly from item to item. Maybe it clicks gently as it stops on an item, but it definitely shouldn't be like like a like a playing card stuck in bicycle spokes. That's stupid. Also, maybe more interestingly, what I find fascinating about the alethiometer is that it's not just answering questions empirically. It has an agenda, right? It's not just that Lyra doesn't understand what the alethiometer is saying about a boy with no demon in a village. It's that she didn't even ask about that. She asked what the defenses are where the kids are being kept at Bullvanger. The alethiometer thought it was necessary to tell her about this other thing she didn't even ask about. The alethiometer said it was important that Lyra should know this and that Lyra should take action. And what that suggests to me is that there is a consciousness of some kind driving these answers, driving what the alethiometer does. These answers are not just coming out of the ether. It's not just reflecting the objective truth of the moment. The alethiometer has a goal. Whatever is making the alethiometer move has a goal. And and as much as the alethiometer is an instrument for Lyra, Lyra is also an instrument of the alethiometer. 
Or another way you could look at it is, is Lyra communicating with the alethiometer or is she using the alethiometer to communicate with something else? Right. And I love that exchange between John Fa and Lyra, which is in the books and is also replicated in the series, where John Fa asks her, that symbol reader ain't playing the fool with you, is it? And Lyra says, it never does, and I don't think it could. And that's sort of true, but it's not exactly true that the alethiometer doesn't have a will, because it mm, does. It's not just a scientific instrument that's going right. to tell you how hot something is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if your thermometer could also tell you, uh, well, you should cook this a little bit more because it'll taste better. Yeah. Or you should really be drinking more fluids if you feel this bad. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so where do we end this episode? Which is an episode that I think uh, it's safe to say neither one of us really love because some things were handled in a disappointing way. Although, who knows, maybe someone who's totally new to the story will be perfectly fine with it. Or we'll find it still potent in ways that we yeah. missed because we were dreaming of the versions in our heads. Yes, exactly. That's always the hazard with this kind of interpretation. But, But anyway, so where are we? In a very scary place. Um, shadowy figures sneak into the Egyptian camp and they kidnap Lyra, taking her to a prison-like location that she soon realizes is Bolvanger. A woman doing a top-notch impression of a Bond villain's henchman orders her to be prepared for treatment, and we know what that means. And I, you got to wonder how it was so easy for these people to snatch her and whether her friends are really capable of saving her before whatever terrible procedure lies ahead of her. And you just have to wonder if her friends, who somehow didn't notice that she was being stolen, um, will be able to succeed in rescuing her from this terrible fate. Meanwhile, in our world, Lord Boreal is up to some skullduggery, his, his specialty. Of course. Yep. Uh, Will has decided that he's not going to read his father's letters, the letters that his mother has hidden underneath the sewing machine in a closet, the letters that his father sent over time uh, while he was on, particularly his final Alaskan expedition, the expedition from which he disappeared, the expedition that he knew, we learn, he might disappear from because he set up an annuity to be paid to Will's mother over decades just in case he went somewhere for a very, very long time. But it looks like Lord Boreal and his own henchmen, his hench guys, are poised to break into the Perry family's flat in search of something, of anything that might give them a clue, and I bet those letters are it. Looks like Will's about to find out that his mom is not so deluded after all, because, as Kurt Cobain said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that Lord Boreal isn't after you. And that's our episode. We'll be back next week to discuss episode six, the demon cages, or as Mitch would put it, the daemon cages. The daemon cages. The Authority is hosted by me, Laura Miller, with Dan Coyce. On Twitter, Dan is at Dan Coyce, and I am at Magician's Book. Or drop us a line, asktheauthority at slate.com. That's asktheauthority, all one word, at slate.com. Our producer is Phil Circus. Engineering assistance from Rosemary Belson. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. Until next week. <laughs>